Genesis chapter 25. So in chapter 25, we find that Abraham, after Sarah's death, took another wife. Her name was Keturah. The name means mother of us all. And she bare him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And Jokshan begat Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Asherim and Ledushim and Leumen. And the sons of Midian, Ephah and Ephor, Genesis 25, 1 through 4. And so forth. And the names mean nothing to us and probably never will. And as I told you so often, it will follow a line just for a generation or two and then drop them. That's the end of it because this line has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. It'll follow it for a generation or so and boop, that's it. Whatever happened to them, where they went, who they became, nobody knows. That's just, they're not significant to the story. The story's about Jesus Christ. But back here in Genesis, this story is about Jesus Christ. And we're going to come on down the line that's going to lead us to Jesus Christ. We're going to let the others just go. We might follow them for a generation or two, but we're not going to follow them very long. They're not important. The whole story centers around the person of Jesus Christ. We say history. Well, what is his story? It is his story, the story of Jesus Christ. That's what history is all about. And so that's what this record is all about. It's all about Jesus. And it's only going to center on the one person, Jesus It'll let the others go quickly. We'll have a name or two thrown in, and then that's the end of it. We're going to let them go because we want to center in. We want to concentrate on the central person of history, which is Jesus Christ. So follow out the rest of Abraham's children for just a ways. And Abraham, and this is the important one, verse 5, gave all that he had to Isaac, Genesis 25, 5. So Isaac's the son of promise. All that he had went to Isaac. But to the other sons of the concubines which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts. Genesis 25, 6. Gave gifts to them. But Isaac, everything that he had went to Isaac. And he sent them away from Isaac, his son, while he yet lived eastward to the east country. Genesis 25, 6. So he gave gifts to them. And sent them away. Isaac is the one in whom the story is going to center because Isaac comes in the line that's going to bring us to Jesus Christ. Now, there are the days of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years. Then Abraham gave up the ghost, or his spirit, literally, and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. Genesis 25, 7 and 8. 175 years old, and Abraham died. That is, he gave up his spirit. In reality, what happened is that his spirit moved out of this old tent because this old tent just couldn't manage it anymore. It was worn out. Once a tent is worn out and has no more value, doesn't keep out the rain or wind or rips, and it's just constantly needing patching and repairing, it's time to move out of the tent. And so Abraham moved out of his tent. So 
Now, this was before Jesus Christ made access into heaven. So Abraham did not go into heaven, but he went into the grave, into Hades, where he became the master comforter of all of those who went into Hades, waiting for the promise of God. So in the 16th chapter of Luke, we find Abraham in Hades comforting Lazarus, and we find the rich man talking to Abraham and Abraham responding with him. Now, when Jesus died before he ascended into heaven, he first of all descended into the lower parts of the earth. And he preached to those souls that were imprisoned, the spirits, Abraham's spirit, down there in prison. Jesus just preached to him and to all those who were with Abraham were waiting for the promise of God, the Messiah, to come. And so the prophecy of Isaiah concerning Jesus Christ is that he would open the prison doors to those who were bound. That's the prison door of death where these people were bound and he opened the door so that when he ascended, he led the captives from their captivity. So that now as a child of God, when my spirit leaves this tent because of the way that Jesus Christ has made for me, when my spirit leaves this tent, it's going into a new house that is not made with hands, a building of God, eternal in the heavens. I'm moving out of this old tent into a new house that the Lord said, he had gone to prepare for me, for he said, in my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. John 14, 2. He's preparing me a new body. It is a building of God. It's not made with hands. It's eternal. This one is temporary. It'll never see the number of years that Abraham's body saw. That would be to me, the worst thing that could ever happen to me would be to live to be 175. In fact, I don't want to even see 75. If God so wills it, fine, but I don't think I'll see it because as this tent wears out, the Lord's already prepared a new building for my spirit, a new house, not a tent anymore. I'm getting sort of tired of the tent, the tent's getting sort of tired too. The tent's good for a while, but after a while you begin to realize that there's not just the conveniences in a tent that you'd like to have. You'd get longing to move into a house. And one of these days, I'm going to move into a brand new house, a building of God not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And that's why Paul said, we who are in this body do often groan, earnestly desiring to move out. It's not that we would be unembodied spirits, but that we might be clothed upon with the body which is from heaven, 2 Corinthians 5.2. For we know that as long as we are in this body, in this tent, that we are absent from the Lord, but we would rather choose rather to be absent from this body and to be present with the Lord and his sons Isaac and Ishmael Genesis 25 9 Abraham Abraham gave up the ghost or his spirit left his body after dwelling in it for 175 years good old age an old man full and he was gathered to his people notice they are joining together now you know there was that animosity that existed between them but it seems that at least at their father's death they were brought together and at their father's death, they joined together. Ishmael is still there, and they buried Abraham in that cave 
at Machpelah, the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, which is there before Mamre. And that field which Abraham purchased in that, you know, the cultural thing we got to get that we got into last time. Now, these are the generations of Ishmael, Genesis 25, 9 and 10. And so we'll follow Ishmael for just a little ways, and then we're going to drop him because Ishmael isn't important to the story. And so he gives us the name of Ishmael's descendants, and they are no more important to us as are the descendants of Abraham's concubines. And so I'm not going to wrestle with those names. You can wrestle with them if you want. Verse 16, it says, And these are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their towns and their castles, twelve princes according to their nations. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael. He lived to be a hundred and thirty-seven years, and he gave up the ghost and died, and was gathered to his people. And they dwelt from Havilah to Shur, that is, before Egypt, as you go to Assyria. And he died in the present presence of all his brothers. And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Genesis 25, 16 through 19. Now we come to the one that's important, the one we will follow. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife, because she was barren, Genesis 25, 19 through 21. Now he married her, but yet she was unable to bear children. And so Isaac prayed for her that God would heal and allow her to bear children. And the Lord was entreated of him and Rebekah, his wife conceived and the children struggled together within her. And she said, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord, Genesis 25, 21 and 22. My, there was just all kinds of, you know, she was pregnant and a man. There was more than just a baby kicking or moving. This was a real fight going on in there. And this fight was continued after they were born. How much consciousness does a child have in the womb? We really don't know because we can't remember. How much consciousness did you have during the first year out of the womb? You really don't know. You cannot remember. Now that a child is conscious out of the womb, I have no doubt, for out of the womb during the first year, a child is capable of expressing feelings of content, contentment, happiness, anger, being upset, and yet none of you can remember that first year of your life outside of the womb. The fact that you can't remember it doesn't mean that you didn't have feelings. So we have no proof at all that a child doesn't have emotions and feelings within the womb. Maybe some of these movements you're feeling are feelings of anger. The kid gets mad at the position and kicks you, you know, and tired of that position. We don't know what feeling they have. We have no idea what feelings we may have prior to being born. Now, it is quite possible that these two little guys in the womb were angry with each other and were going at it. They were struggling in her womb. And as they were struggling in her womb, and as they were born, as soon as they were born, the one little guy reached out and grabbed the other guy's heels, still struggling with him. Fight still going on, and it really never did stop. So she was concerned with all this movement, and so she prayed about it. Lord, what's going on? And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from 
their birth or from your bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Now, this is before they were ever born, before they ever did, ever did anything. How is it that God could already make this prediction? Is there fairness with God? Is it fair for God to say, well, the elder's going to serve the younger before they were ever born? Paul takes this up in Romans, the sovereignty of God in election. But we must also remember that God's election is always premised upon his foreknowledge, whom he did foreknew, foreknow, those he did also predestinate, that they should be conformed to the image of his Son. Romans 8.29. So God chose, while the children were still fighting in the womb, two nations are fighting, nations that are going to be different from each other. One is stronger, and so the two nations, Israel and the Edomites, who never did really get along. Now, the Edomite nation has come to an end. The last known Edomite was the family of Herod, who was the king at the time of Jesus. And still then, he destroyed all the Jewish boys trying to get rid of the Messiah. The Edomites remained antagonistic toward the purposes of God. When the children of Israel were coming out of the land of Egypt and wanted to pass through their land in order that they might come to the land that God had promised them, the Edomites came out to meet them, to fight them, to keep them from coming through, again seeking or showing themselves antagonistic to the purposes of God. This is the characteristic of the Edomites from the beginning. Esau was that way. He really didn't care about God or the things of God. He was a very natural man. He was the typical natural man, interested in manly kind of things, to be sure, but not interested in godly things. And God, knowing in advance his disposition and his despising of spiritual things in advance, chose the younger one to be the heir and the one through whom the Messiah would eventually come. So the younger one is chosen by God over the elder while still in the womb. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first one came out red, all over like a hairy garment. So it's just like a little kid covered with hair, and so appropriately they called his name Harry. That's what Esau means. And that was very common in those days. You would name your child after a circumstance of his birth. After that came his brother, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, Genesis 25:26, And that was probably exciting. Oh, look, he grabbed his brother's heel. And then someone said, well, then call him heel catcher. And Jacob literally means heel catcher. That's the literal interpretation. It came to mean surplanter, but the literal meaning is heel catcher. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bare them. Genesis 25:26. So they went 20 years without any children, 40 when he was married, 60 before the children were born. So there are 20 years and he prayed and God gave her children, gave her twins. And the boys grew and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, an outdoorsman. But Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. Genesis 25:27. Now, I'm afraid that the translators have done Jacob a bad turn in translating this a plain man. The word they translated was the Hebrew word tam. They translated it plain. The word other places in the Old Testament has been translated perfect. 
You remember when God said to Satan concerning Job, have you considered my servant Job a perfect man? That's the same Hebrew word, tam. Considering Job, it was translated perfect. And so the translators have done Jacob sort of a bad turn here, calling him a plain man. The scripture actually is saying he was a perfect man or a complete man, but he dwelt in tents. Now, we have a tendency to really put Jacob down. And I have to confess that I've done my fair share of putting this guy down because of some of the tricks that he's pulled. But in reality, he was the man that God had chosen. And the interesting thing is that God never put him down. And so about the last time I put him down, the Lord spoke to me and said, hey, how come you keep putting him down? And I said, oh man, look at those horrible things he did. And God said to me, hey, where did I put him down? And I looked and I couldn't find where God put Jacob down. So I quit putting Jacob down. For Paul said, who are you to judge another man's servant? Before his own master, he either stands or falls, and yet God is able to make him stand. Romans 14, 4. And God made Jacob to stand. So who am I to put him down? If Jacob were my servant, then I would have dealt with him as I felt that maybe he should have been dealt with. But he isn't my servant. He doesn't have to answer to me. He is God's servant. Now, if that is true about Jacob, then it is true also about each other. Who am I to put you down when God is lifting you up? Who am I to judge you? You aren't not, not my servant. You were my, if you were my servant, then I could judge you. You're not serving me. You're not serving God. And, or I'm sorry, you're serving God. And thus I have no right to judge you. Oh, you're a rotten servant. I have no right to make that kind of judgment concerning you. That's God's judgment. That's for him to judge because you're serving him. And it's for him to judge me because I seek to serve him. So Jacob was not a plain man. He was a tam man. Perfect, actually, or a complete man. And he dwelt in tents. His, brothers, his brother was outdoors. And Jacob loved the tent life. And Isaac loved Esau, but for really for base reason, because he ate his barbecued venison, Genesis 25, 28. Now that's no reason for loving one son above another, just because the guy's a good hunter and can bring in some venison. You get hooked on venison, and so he loved Esau because he ate the venison. But Rebekah loved Jacob, Genesis 25, 28. So sad but true that with the parents, they're was a displaying of favoritism among their children. And Jacob was fixing some pottage. And Esau came in from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray you, with some of that red pottage, for I am faint. And therefore his name was called, from then on red, Edom, meaning red. Genesis 25, 29, and 30. And his descendants were called the Edomites, because he wanted this red pottage. He was hungry and fainting. And Jacob said, sell me this day your birthright. And Esau said, hey, I'm ready to die. What profit is a birthright to me? Genesis 25, 31 and 32. He was very flippant about it. Hey man, what about that birthright? I'm ready to die. I want your pottage. But Jacob pressed the point. And Jacob said, swear to me then this day. And he swore to him. And thus he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau the bread and the pottage of lentils, which he did eat and drink. And they rose up 
and he rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright, Genesis 25, 33, and 34. He didn't really care about the birthright at all. He wasn't interested in the spiritual things. He could care less about his birthright. He hated it. He wasn't interested in it, and thus he despised his birthright. 